0: After my recent knee surgery, I was working with a couple of fantastic physical therapists. These guys are great doctors, and uh, we've become friends. One afternoon, one of the PT docs asked if I'd be willing to let a new student work on my knee. And I said, sure, more the merrier. And so this, uh, this young PT doc who was on one of her first rotations came, and she started, she started attacking the, uh, all of the uh, scar tissue in my knee. And she knew her stuff, but there was just one problem. Every time she would make it start to hurt, and I would go, "Ah," you know, and and make a painful noise, she would relax the pressure. Did did you get the point? Every time it would be obvious that it was hurting me, she would relax the pressure. Afterwards, the doc and I both told her the same thing. If you you want to get the patient stronger, you push harder when it hurts. Not less. You push harder harder yes it's hard for the patient but it's the only way that they can get better some of our parents used to say to us this is going to hurt but it's for your good right Anybody experienced that with coaches or parents or mentors or physicians? It's going to hurt, but it's for you good. All right, cool. If you have, then you understand the premise behind Jesus' higher ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Laying out the healthiest, highest ethic possible, Jesus said the righteousness of his followers must surpass even that of the uber-holy scribes and Pharisees. Whoa, that is a tall order. Frankly, there is no mere human who can be more holy than those first century Vunderkind. How can a person's righteousness possibly surpass the Pharisees? It reminds me of, um, of when I was a kid in, in school sports. I always appreciated the cheerleaders who inspired us, but on occasion, there were cheers that made me wonder. For example, I remember, I remember this vividly. I'm on the wrestling mat. I'm in the middle of a match, and the cheerleaders who, in, where I grew up, they're down on the mat, they're doing these cheers on the mat. The cheerleaders pick up the cheer. They start going, Wayne, Wayne, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. And I thought immediately, what if no one can? (laughs) And it was right after that I developed the ability to block out things that were not what I was focusing on. But the point is worthy of consideration. What if no one can? Jesus' calling in Matthew 5.20 is frankly unattainable. It is a bar that is set too high. Thankfully, God doesn't expect us to cross over that bar on our merits. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is addressing his followers, that's very important. These are people who have been reborn through trust in him and they have chosen to follow Jesus and that changes everything. Look at your notes, great comment by, uh, by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Um, your, your notes are inside the worship guide you got when you came in, open that up, look on the left hand side and you'll read this. It takes a new man to live to this kind of life. This is no theory for the world or for non-Christians. No man can hope to live like this unless he is born again, unless he has received the Holy Spirit. It is to such people that our Lord addresses this noble, exalted, and divine teaching. It is not comfortable teaching to consider, and I can assure you it is not an easy thing to spend a week with a text like this. Amen. But this is the Word of God. And this is what Christ would have us be. It deals with our whole personality down to the little practical details of life. Close quote. So let's get into some of those little practical details of life where Jesus, who saves us, hurts us for our good. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and let's read verses 20 through 26. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious council that oversaw uh, a number of different things in Jewish life. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So. If you're offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Here we learn God's ethic on arguments. God's ethic on arguments. How many people here have ever been in an argument? Raise your hand really high. If you've ever been in an argument, raise your hand really high. Keep them up. Okay, there's a couple of guys that didn't raise their hands. I think you might want to check and see if they've expired because that's really a ridiculous thing to think of. We all deal with arguments and disagreements, disputes, anger, disgust. It is part of nearly every day of life on this earth. Here's the main problem. In every age, in every place, the main problem is figuring out the different voices that are telling us how to handle those arguments. That's the biggest problem. There's always lots of voices saying how to handle the arguments. We've got to understand what are the different voices saying. A few years ago, um, this goofy video became a viral hit. Take a look and listen. Goes loose, frog goes crow, and the elephant goes toot. Ducks and quack, and fish go blow, and the seal goes ow, ow, ow. But there's no sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? Okay I can't handle any more of that. That's ridiculous. That is nonsensical, it's fun, it's weird, it's ludicrous. Do you know that has been seen by almost one-fifth of the human beings on this planet? (laughs) And as silly as it is, though, that song actually exposes an important point. We've got to know what the various voices are saying. This is true in our text, It's true in our daily world. Three voices in the Matthew 5 context, okay, three voices. The Moses Law, the Mosaic Law, is the first voice that Jesus is using. The second is what the, the scribes and Pharisees, the religious law leaders say in their interpretation of Moses, and then finally what God the Son Jesus says about the biblical ethic. By the way, in one, there are six antitheses here, six little pieces, we're going to study three of them today. In one of them, there's a fourth voice, and that is the Roman law, but we'll get to all that. Let's start with Moses' law. What does Moses' law say about arguments? The Hebrew law about disputes comes down uh, to two categories. There are two categories of disputes, those inside the covenant community and those with outsiders. It's a bit broad, but I think I I can distill the arguments within the covenant community to four big points. Okay, four big points. Number one, no partiality, no bribes. No partiality, no bribes. Uh, Exodus 23 is one of the main passages on this. Don't show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. However, you also must not deny justice to a poor person. So no partiality, no bribes. Second point within the covenant community, your feelings or situation don't change the ethics. This is really hard for some of you, especially younger people, to hear, but according to God's word and Moses' law, it doesn't matter what you feel. That's not the basis of determining an argument. Uh, It's based on other factors. What you feel matters, but not in terms of deciding the argument. Thirdly, you don't go along with the crowd. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. And then the fourth comes from Deuteronomy. If it's necessary, a dispute between two people in the covenant community can go to court. Uh, But if it does go to court and you don't like the outcome, you can appeal. And then it goes to what we would call kind of a college of priests. And then ultimately you can appeal to God. When Moses was alive, that was done through Moses. That's what Moses' law says about arguments among Yahweh's people. Here's the wrinkles the law applies with outsiders. There's two aspects to it. One is all outsiders were expected to live according to the laws of Israel. All of them. There was no such thing as diplomatic immunity under the Mosaic law. Secondly is the law of the gear. And this is really uh, important and misunderstood. There's a lot of words for outsider non-citizen in Hebrew. Uh, which is funny because Hebrew doesn't have a lot of words, but it has a lot for those who are not part of the covenant community. One of those words is very important. It's the word ger. It's usually translated in our Bible as sojourner. And the ger was somebody who chose to live in Israel, and they came legally, and they chose to abide by Israel's laws. Now, this isn't somebody who converted to Judaism. They didn't necessarily trust in Yahweh, but they said they would live by the law. They were protected. And I can't emphasize how wild that is. No other country in the world... In the Bronze and Iron Ages, had laws that protected non-citizens. But the Hebrews did. But it was only for the gear. The, the illegal aliens were not eligible for protection. Now, mercy, according to the Bible, is appropriate for everyone, but justice is reserved for citizens and gear. Okay, that's Moses' law on arguments, disagreements. All right, now, second voice in the text. What did the scribes and Pharisees teach? The best way I can think of to describe the pharisaical attitude toward arguments is, is with the children's game musical chairs. Okay? The Pharisees would suddenly stop the music and, and anybody who didn't want to be ostracized better very quickly find a chair within their new redrawn circle of orthodoxy. One never knew when the music would stop. Here's what they would do. The, the scribes would study Moses' law and they would find some obscure way to misinterpret a text. The Pharisees then would spread that all around and create what we would today call kind of a cultural moment. And, and, and everyone, everyone was supposed to laugh in supposed horror of how foolish and misguided all the previous generations were because they lived wrongly. They didn't have our enlightened attitude. That was the Pharisaical way of teaching. So, So one year, it'd be okay to be angry with somebody, and you could call them X, a name X, right? But the next year, that name was suddenly sinful and unenlightened. Of course, the underlying issue of the anger was never addressed. It was merely just behavior judged according to their ever-changing mores, and the circle just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Accusation, blame, ostracism, these were the main tools the Pharisees used to protect their supposed orthopraxy. And of course, we hear all that, and all we can think is, thank goodness we're not like that. But we are according to the ever morphing odd moral legalism of our own time we're always looking for the next person to exclude in fact i think it is the major activity of our time we're always looking for the next person to exclude and we want to be very quick to jump on any of the few remaining chairs whenever the 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 music stops megan basham pointed this out a world magazine column this was written on january 21st 2019 she said Approximately 15 seconds of video from the March for Life had many Christian leaders united in a harsh condemnation of an anonymous teenage boy this weekend. Prominent pastors, theologians, and Bible teachers quickly expressed outrage. Let's be clear, this isn't simple hate, it's demonic activity, tweeted one pastor. Another publicly wondered if college admissions officers would post their pictures with the message, do not admit. A theologian commented, this is white supremacist terrorism. Finally, a leading Bible teacher with nearly a million social media followers tweeted, I cannot shake the terror of adolescents already indoctrinated in enough hate and disrespect to smile that chillingly and jeer without shame or fear of God. Uncurb, this utterly dehumanizing is what humanitarian horrors are made of. She added in a later tweet, it reeks of the vomit of hell. And they would all have been right if... The 15 seconds in question had accurately represented the entire incident. It didn't. As the weekend unfolded, further videos cast a decidedly different light on events. The problem is that we think we must not only have an opinion, we must broadcast it as quickly and as stridently as possible with the biblical weight of Scripture often attached. Close quote. Modern Christians should have absolutely no trouble understanding the Pharisees' voice in Matthew 5 because it sounds exactly like our Twitter feeds. Now, let's get to the Messiah's take. It's the last and most important voice. On the right side of our notes, we ask, how does Jesus get to the heart of the matter? I say the heart of the matter because Jesus is going for a much higher standard than action. He's even going for a higher standard than thought. He's going for the heart and soul of a person. Look at our voices. Moses spoke God's truth, and it shows God's holiness and our need, our inability to get to that holiness. The Pharisaical legalists warp that truth, and they come up with kind of a fake human morality of musical chairs. Jesus fulfills Moses' law and he shows us how we really can live as his followers. First thing, Christ's followers, don't forget the context of grace. Back up in your text to verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Look at what Jesus said. Do not assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfills the law. He does so by meeting every single requirement of Moses' law so those who trust in him can be fulfilled by grace. The, the, The Pharisees They warp the law. They add burdens to it. Jesus doesn't do that. He fulfills Moses' law. Every one of the commands is met in his perfect life and death and resurrection. That allows the Mosaic law to become part of the eternal Abrahamic covenant of salvation by grace through faith. Look at this. This is so cool. Look, in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul details this as three historical paths. He lays out three historical paths. The first is Abraham's covenant. Abraham's covenant where God's salvation is given by grace through faith. That covenant is eternal. In Abraham's covenant, law is met through the sin sacrifice that is provided by God himself alone. Moses' covenant of law is the second line. That's fulfilled in Jesus. So it is absorbed back into the covenant of grace from which it sprang for a very defined and limited time. The third line that Paul lays out for us, and we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, is the Pharisaical line. This is a warped bastardization of Moses' law. It's wrongly treated as an eternal covenant, and and it's ever-expanding. It's always expanding according to whatever humans of the time want to call justice. Jesus eliminates that Pharisaical line. He fulfills the Mosaic line, and he leads us right back in so we can be children of Father Abraham by grace. All God's people said... All right, so then, by grace, the Lord says, don't foster anger with the brethren. Look at verse 22 again. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you moron, will be subjected to hellfire. Rekha, the word we translate, fool, it's an Aramaic uh, slang term. It actually was considered a kind of mild cuss word. Um, It means empty-headed. Especially regarding God or knowledge of the truth. You just heard a great translation of rakah. Our Christian sister with the million followers who tweeted about those Catholic boys, she said, without shame or fear of God. That's rakah. She called them rakah. The Greek term we translate moron is morose. Now, it doesn't just mean what we think of as moron, idiotic. It also means immoral. Calling a fellow Christian either of these carries dire consequences. As with all anger toward our brethren, there is both earthly embarrassment and there is an eternal loss of rewards. That's why it says, so as through fire. Uh, Corinthians talks about this. It says, you will be saved, yet so as through fire, right? There's judgment. By the way, the point is not the actual words. It's, it's not, <laughs> Jesus himself twice after this calls people morose. He uses the word. The point is to think and care. We only use confrontation when it's really warranted. And when we do so, we speak the truth in what, everybody? In love. Sometimes anger is appropriate, but anger never stays in Moses' law. Godly anger is found fulfilled in grace. It is never based on the pharisaical zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, that says, Ooh, I better get out in front of this. I better look like I'm the cool kid part of the crowd. I want to make sure that I'm not seen as a bad guy. No! Our anger is from Jesus' heart, so it takes time to think and care. Uh, Mrs. Basham, the, the journalist we read earlier, I think she understands this. L- listen to the end of Megan's excellent column that we read from earlier. She said, we, le- we left it here. We think we must not only have an opinion, we must broadcast it quickly and stridently as possible with the biblical way of scripture often attached. This is a far greater error than the so-called fake news, as we use faith as a cover in our rush to judgment. Think of the young man whose face has now been plastered across the media, opening him to enduring attacks and penalties, and consider the travesty that Christians helped make that happen. God's Word warns us not to show any preference to the poor over the rich because that, too, can be a temptation in matters of truth and justice. We likewise shouldn't show preference to a Native American man over white teens without waiting for further facts. And I just want to tell you, I I agree with that, and I'm saying that as a Native American man. She goes on. Some church leaders have since deleted their condemnation, while others have admirably expressed remorse and asked for forgiveness. Sadly, some of the most prominent have let the slander stand, leaving it to be drowned by whatever newer topics fill their feeds. Whether that's the fault of cowardice, laziness, or ignorance, it is conduct unbecoming our Lord's service. If we have time to condemn, we have time to correct She finishes with this. No matter how great our desire to show remorse for past and present collective sins, we can't let our emotion run away with our discernment. Hot takes should be anathema to people who are charged to be slow to anger and slow to speak. I love this last line. The reconciliation of tomorrow won't stand if it's built on the lies of today. Close quote. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter by teaching us to remember the grace context and not to foster anger with the brethren. His third point is to reconcile with adversaries. Now, get this. Like most pagans, the Pharisees taught that ritual of worship is all important. But Jesus says reconciliation is more important than ritual. If your brother has something against you, you run take care of that as top priority. Now, I know as you're thinking, that brings up a great question. You're, you're probably hearing it in your Julia voice voice. Uh, Talking to George Orwell's big brother in 1984, but what if the claim against you is false? What if it's false? It's a great question, thank you. Possibly you've lived that scenario, have you? I know I have. Wrongfully accused at, uh, at, at worst, misunderstood at best, I have a few times discovered somebody was mad at me. Since I am a quasi-public figure, these, these adversaries felt understandable freedom to broadcast their complaints about me, sometimes robustly. Now, I don't know all the reasons behind Jesus' command for me to go to them and seek reconciliation. I do know this, he's the Lord, and he is to be obeyed. And I'll tell you, I've learned one great thing. When you do obey Jesus, when you go meet face-to-face with your adversary, it is much more difficult to treat that person as a caricature or for them to do the same to you. When I sit down and have, have tea or, or coffee with an accuser, Here's what I've experienced. We walk away understanding whatever our differences, we are each human beings who are loved by God. Joseph Epstein uh, covered this a great article. Look at what Epstein wrote. He said, George Orwell wrote a letter in 1938 to the poet Stephen Spender, in which he, in effect, registered his regret at having finally met Spender. The reasons for this might amuse. Before their encounter, Orwell reports, he had disdained Spender as a parlor Bolshevik because A, your verse, what I'd read of it, did not mean very much to me. B, I looked upon you as a sort of fashionable, successful person, also a communist or communist sympathizer, and I've been very hostile to the Communist Party since about 1935. And C, because having not met you, I could regard you as a type and also an abstraction. He goes on. Orwell adds, when you meet anyone in the flesh, you realize immediately he's a human being and not a sort of caricature embodying certain ideas. As a result, I shall never again be able to show any intellectual brutality towards him, even when I feel that I ought to. Close quote. All God's people said. Jesus shares the second picture of reconciliation. This one's very likely with an outsider instead of a Jew. Uh, It concerns an out of court settlement between litigants. Jesus says, What? When should you reach an agreement? What does he say? Yeah, ASAP, soon as possible. Reconcile with people. Do it for the sake of eternal loss. Remember, losing rewards so as through hellfire. And also for the sake of earthly punishment, because if things go against you, you'll be suffering here. Now, that sparks another question. This is one I be, I've been asked really often. Uh, you're likely thinking it yourself using your, uh, your Napoleon imitation from George Orwell's Animal Farm. Um, what if there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel in our relationships? What if this relationship seems to have no hope? Great question, Napoleon. Thank you for asking. Here's the answer. Romans chapter 12. Read it with me, please. You take the underlying text starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do whatever is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Yes, that is hard. I know, I know. Sometimes it it hurts to let God be God. But Jesus is the great physician. And as he's breaking up the scar tissue in your life, know that his biblical ethic is best. Now, that was extensive, but having grasped the the style, the, the next is much quicker to cover. Let's read verses 27 through 30. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's ethic on adultery. What does Moses' law say? That's our first voice. First voice is Moses' law. What does it say? Well, it's pretty clear. Seventh and tenth commandments, uh, Exodus 20. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. One of my favorite theologians he is actually here this morning, George Hillman of Dallas Seminary. Uh, he was once given a great synopsis he was leading a men's bible study and a guy said this to George here's the summary of the 7th and 10th commandments a wise monkey doesn't monkey with another monkey's monkey (laughs) that's brilliant but that's hard do you know why that's hard because we're monkeys that's that's monkeying around is what we do in the immortal words of Davy Jones hey hey we're the monkeys we love to monkey around we we are monkeys how many of you Have monkeyed around this way? Let me just say this. How many of you have coveted or compared, just wanted something that somebody else had? You've just wanted something somebody else had. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. I think we got all the hands this time except that one lady back there apparently was never two years old. Once again, the law shows God's standard and our insufficiency. That's what Moses does. Now, what do the scribes and Pharisees teach? I think this is a pretty fair summary of their ethic. I drew this from a lot of sources. Let me just summarize for you. Let me explain. Don't take too long. Let me sum up. Um, (laughs) Adultery, according to the Pharisees, applied only to married people. That is, they they saw it as a physical act only. They didn't deal with the mindset at all. They weren't worried about any mindset. And then, get this one. This is going to blow you away. Here's what the Pharisees taught in the first century. If a man did lust for some woman he could then go back and divorce his current wife for no reason and then marry the newer model in order to stay clean. How sick is that? I can objectify someone and then add abandonment and divorce to the pile and call it clean. Now, the, the scribes argue this was the only way they could keep Moses' law current in the wild world of the first century. <laughs> Never heard that before, have you? It's baloney. It was baloney then, it's baloney now. Again, Moses spoke the truth. Get our voices. Moses spoke the truth. Exposes our need, our our inability. The Pharisaical legalist response to that is to come up with this kind of warped, fake human morality. Jesus fulfills Moses' law. He shows us how to live as his followers by getting to the heart of the matter. How does he get to the heart of the matter? Two illustrations again. The eye picture is his first one. It's a brilliant way to say guard your attention. Pluck out your eye is figurative language for Seeing. And it's more than seeing physically. Look, the the Greek infinitive we translate lust is epithemeo. Epithemeo means desire. It carries the idea of possession and control. This is not positive sexual desire. God loves positive sexual desire in marriage. You read the Song of Solomon in Hebrew, it is amazing. God loves healthy, positive, sexual rambunctiousness in marriage. That's why he looks at him and says, get drunk on each other. Drink deeply, my lovers, imbibe. It's just beautiful stuff. This is negative desire. This is lust. So think this through. The issue isn't so much sexual. It's objectification and control. So here's what I think epithemeo is. Epithemeo is the core of rape. It's about control and power. Epithemeo is what, uh, is what women and men do when they flirt with somebody or, or when they date or marry somebody in order to control them. And that happens. Epithemeo is what both sexes do when they look at porn or they read salacious novels. It gives a false sense of strength and importance to somebody. That's why, that's why epithemeo is the real toxin, not masculinity, not femininity. Epithemeo is the problem. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all the Bible. It says this, King David saw Bathsheba. He was, he was letting his eyes wander, epithemeo. King David did not guard his attention, and he ended up treating that woman and her family as objects. Jesus says, guard your attention, do not objectify. Years before Sandra Bullock made guarding one's eyes famous with her bird box, I received a really cool letter. Look at this, really delightful letter. I got this from a young man that I coached. He wrote, and he said, Coach, from you I learned to look away from Victoria's Secret. You never said anything, but I noticed every time our team walked through the mall, you found something interesting on the other side. Thank you for teaching me to guard my eyes, close quote. Guarding your attention is a heart issue. I mean, you know how this works, right? If you feed the thought, if you don't take it captive, it's going to grow. And horribly, then, that person over whom you lust becomes a mere object. Looking at the text, Jesus' hand illustration deals with the physical actions that, that always follow seeing. He says, he says, cut off the hand that sins. Of course, this sparks another query that you're posing in your voice of George Orwell himself. You're, you're asking this. You're saying, isn't this scary, rhetoric? I mean, plucking eyes and cutting hands, it sounds like a literal bloody mess, right? Thank you for asking, George. It's an excellent question. Your British history actually provides the answer through the life of one of my heroes, the amazing William Tyndale. William Tyndale wrote the first popular translation of the Scriptures into English. And by the way, that act was technically against the law when he did it. And, and, and in case you don't know, in translating the scriptures into English at the early days of the Reformation, William Tyndall basically invented your language, our language, modern English. You can read all about it in this fantastic book, God's bestseller. Highly recommend it. Very good book. Now, Sir Thomas More hated Tyndall. When I say Thomas More, you have to boo and hiss, okay? Uh, Sir Thomas More. He hated Tyndall. He hated the idea of the Bible being in common people's hands. Uh, If you don't know more, he was the original utopian elitist. Uh, I think he's a politician who would have been very, very uh, at ease in modern Brussels or Washington or the U.N., now, one of Moore's arguments against Tyndale's Bible was based on this text, the very text we're reading today. Um, here's, how it, here's how it goes down. A friar who was part of uh, Sir Thomas Moore's party, uh, one of his friars, was sent to this pulpit. This is the pulpit in Cambridge, uh, it's at King's College. It, it was one of the most, it was the center of the Reformation in England. And the friar preached one Sunday, and he said this By reading of the Holy Scriptures, will the whole realm come into confusion? A simple reader might take the language literally and pluck out his eyes. And so the whole realm will be full of blind men to the great decay of the nation and the manifest loss of the king's grace. All right. The next Sunday, the great Reformation preacher Hugh Latimer entered that same pulpit. And he said, simple people are quite capable of discerning between the literal and the figurative. For example, said Latimer, if we paint a fox preaching in a friar's hood, nobody imagines that a fox is meant, but that craft and hypocrisy are described, traits which are so often found disguised in that garb. (laughs) Now we know what the fox says. (laughs) Unlike the foxy friar, Jesus knows that we can take, listen, he knows we can take his instructions seriously without wrongly taking it physically. Let's read our last two verses, our last two verses. It is also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's Jesus' explanation of God's ethic on divorce. What does Moses' law say? We always start there. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 24. That's the passage where Moses makes it legally acceptable for a husband to divorce his wife. Now, you gotta put this in context. Deuteronomy 24 occurred in the Bronze Age, and in those cultures, it was an amazingly positive deal that this woman is protected with a legal certificate. By the way, that certificate would have been approved by a priest, and it allowed her complete freedom to remarry whomever she wished. That certificate may also have included her dowry as well. We don't know. We can't tell for sure, but it's possible. Now, the critical issue in Deuteronomy 24, and you can see the verse up here, is that all this could only happen if the husband finds out something improper about his wife. And the context in Deuteronomy suggests sexual immorality. But you can probably guess what the legalists did with that. What do the scribes and Pharisees teach? Well, there's another passage in Matthew that really nicely exposes their teaching. Matthew 19, Jesus is directly tested on this issue of divorce. Look at the question. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Do you see what they did there? Did you catch it? They say a dude can divorce his wife for any reason. He can dump his bride for whatever he wants. And in this, they were following one of the most famous rabbis of all time, a guy named Hillel the Elder. Uh, He died when Jesus was a child. Hillel interpreted Deuteronomy 24 as allowing divorce for anything, anything that offended the husband, anything that harmed any aspect of his life. Burn the toast, you're out. That's what Hillel said. I don't know if you know this, but it's very easy to stretch proper. It's very easy to stretch decent. It's very easy to stretch from my own health. You can stretch those phrases to fit your own selfish desires very easily, right? Right? If, if you doubt me just go to new york the lawmakers there right now are currently using that exact same logic to kill babies up until the moment of their birth now divorce is the issue where roman law comes into play as well so what was the roman ethic this is the one where we got roman law here's the roman law this one's really simple we have plenty of of uh, examples of this from our documents that we have of roman law the official law of the empire any male or female can divorce for any reason at any time okay Upon divorce, you're going to see this, the laws were slanted very much in favor of the female in divorce, in Roman law. Upon divorce, the female receives her entire dowry back, and she also gets half of all property that was earned during the years of marriage. The Romans were trying to discourage men from divorcing their wives, all right? So, let's review what we have here. What do the various animals say? Okay, Moses says, divorce is acceptable, but only for indecency, and it's got to be above board. The scribes, Pharisees divorce anytime for anything the romans anytime for anything by either pro, either party and the settlement favors the female in the middle of all that mess how does jesus summarize the heart of the matter he says marriage is holy to god it is a holy covenant many people are familiar with god's word through the prophet malachi i hate divorce But a lesser known passage is equally chilling. Look at Malachi chapter 2. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Treachery, treason, that's what God calls it. He says unbiblical divorce stains us outwardly and exposes our inward hate. So, with that in mind, let's go back to the Pharisees' question. Matthew 19, let's read Jesus' answer. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read? He replied. And by the way, I picture him just pausing there as if just to say, Can you read? I mean, morose. How dumb are you? Can you even read? This is absurd. I, I don't know if he did that, but it just tickles me. Haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Genesis 1. Genesis 2. He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Well, why then? They asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. No one is property. No one is an object. Males and females are combined into one in marriage. They are two people, male and female, joined into one by God. By the way, uh, Mark, when you look at the Gospel of Mark real quickly, Mark was a Roman citizen. Right, And he's writing to a Roman audience. And he wants to make sure all the Romans hear that Jesus closes the female side of this loophole as well. Remember, Roman law allowed the female divorce. So, so look, what, look what Mark says. Mark says, whoever divorces, Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, if you think that saying such things will get a pastor some angry male today, and it does... Just consider the fascinating context into which Jesus spoke these words. Did did you know this? Less than 10 years before Jesus said all this, this lady, Herodias, she is the granddaughter of Herod the Great, okay? Herodias divorced her husband and married his brother, uh, Herod Antipas. John the baptizer declared appropriately, that's scripturally unacceptable, it's wrong. Anybody know what that cost him? His head, right? Herod Antipas, and, uh, and Herodias had him killed. Herodias had him beheaded. Herod Antipas, get this, Herod Antipas is the ruler now of Galilee. Anybody remember where Jesus is giving this speech? Where is he? He's in Galilee. That's even more flamboyant than what John did. John was at least in another province. This is, uh, he is putting his head on the block. And doing so, Jesus gets back to the bottom line of Moses' law. Except for sexual immorality, divorce is not acceptable for God's people. If the divorce is biblically unacceptable, then so is the remarriage. Now later, God's going to add a, a, a second addendum specifically to address a problem that comes up, which is Christians who are married to non-believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So what is God saying? Here's what he's saying. Abandonment, if you're abandoned for the sake of Christ, death or sexual immorality, these are the only legitimate reasons for ending marriage. If someone endures one of these horrors, and they are horrible to go through. If someone endures one of these horrors, they should be supported and they are free to remarry. Everything else is Roman or scribal sophistry, It's pharisaical mumbo-jumbo that we develop because of our selfish, fearful, hard hearts. Now, if you are divorced and remarried and it was outside those parameters, please know this, what God has joined together now should not be put apart. And all of us must remember and know that in Jesus, God forgives all our sins. All God's people said? But please be very clear to yourself. Your marriage is a holy covenant. It is to be treated as such, and it is not to be flippantly dismissed or taken for granted. Okay, let's put it all together. Let's look over Jesus' perfect summary of the ethic of God's word. He tells us four things in what we've just read. Don't foster anger with the brethren. Don't fight with your brothers and sisters. Reconcile with adversaries. Always guard your attention perfectly. Treat your marriage or any other marriage... As nothing less than a holy covenant. Now, I know that pressure hurts. But we need to partner with God. And we need to apply this to our lives to break up all the old scar tissue in our lives. So pray with me, please. Let's pray together. For the Christians who are studying with me, pray this. I, I encourage you to pray this. Lord, use this pressure to make me more holy in my relationships. Lord, use this pressure to make me more holy in my relationships. Now, you Christians, I encourage you to continue in prayer. Get specific with God about where you need to grow. And while you pray, let me address the non-Christians who are convicted by these truths. Listen, non-Christians, there is life in Christ Jesus. Life that frees us from the penalty of our law-breaking. Believe on him and you are set free. Apart from him, we're condemned. In him, our condemnation is eliminated. Trust Jesus right now. Believe on him. If you just trusted Jesus, the Savior, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is still praying about their own life. Let me rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Lord, I I must confess that I have fostered anger with brethren. I've gossiped. I've shared stupid things that shouldn't have been shared. Lord, I've had adversaries with whom I have not reconciled, haven't even noticed the need. I have not always guarded my attention perfectly. And horribly, I have treated marriages as something less than a holy covenant, at least in passing. And it's ridiculous, and I am sorry. I beg you to change me, along with my brothers and sisters here, from the inside out, change us. It's good that it hurts, because we want to be healthy and holy in our relationships. For your sake, in Jesus' name, amen.